0: Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times—it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report, and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, reaction to comments by Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, who said that football supporters heading to Qatar for the Men's Football World Cup should be respectful to the host nation and be willing to make compromises. But how can you respect a nation which has built a tournament off the back of exploited migrant workers and where people who are LGBT have to compromise their core identity? Cleverly was himself reacting to a protest by Peter Tatchell in Qatar in which the celebrated activist held up a banner outside the National Museum in Doha which read, ''Qatar arrests, jails and subjects LGBTs to conversion.'' Tatchell later released a statement saying there can be no normal sporting relations with an abnormal regime like Qatar. It is homophobic, sexist and a racist dictatorship. Qatar, he said, cannot be allowed to sportswash its reputation. It is using the World Cup to enhance its international image. We must ensure that the tyrant regime in Doha does not score a PR victory. And Australia's footballers have released a video urging Qatar to legalise same-sex marriage and they've criticised the exploitation of migrant workers during the construction of World Cup stadiums, saying this cannot be ignored.
1: We have learned that the decision to host the World Cup in Qatar has resulted in the suffering and in the harm of countless of our fellow workers. These migrant workers who have suffered are not just numbers. Like the migrants that have shaped our country and our football, they possess the same courage and determination to build a better life. As players, we fully support the rights of the LGBTI plus people. But in Qatar, people are not free to love the person that they choose. Addressing these issues is not easy and we do not have all the answers.
0: We stand with Pro the Building and Woodworkers International and the International Trade Union Confederation seeking to embed reforms and establish a lasting legacy in Qatar.
1: This must include establishing a migrant resource centre, effective remedy for those who have been denied their rights, and the decriminalisation of all same-sex relationships. These are the basic rights that should be afforded to all and will ensure continued progress in Qatar. This is how we can ensure a legacy that goes well beyond the final whistle of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Ahead
0: of the Rainbow Laces weekend, when English football celebrates LGBT inclusion, we'll be hearing from Felix Jakins from Amnesty International and Sarah Robinson, a member of Proud Baggies, comprised of LGBT supporters from championship team West Bromwich Albion. My club, as it happens. First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our must-read monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else. We can report without fear or favour, because there's no billionaire or shadowy oligarch telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you, so please subscribe to the Byline Times if you can. You get full details over at bylinetimes.com. Subscribe. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. Full details, as I say, at bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Felix, I want to talk uh, in detail about the LGBT issue, but let's talk about migrant workers. We're talking about a situation here in which many people have died building the stadiums, which we will be watching in the World Cup.
1: Yeah, thanks, Adrian. So we know that Amnesty International know that around 6,000 people have died since Qatar was awarded the World Cup. So 6,000 migrant workers died in the country since Qatar was was awarded the World Cup. Now, the exact cause of those deaths is extremely unclear. And that's due in large part to the deliberate obfuscation by the Qatari authorities about actually revealing the causes of those deaths. But we know that an enormous number of them are likely to have been caused by labouring, under the hot sun for 14 hours a day extremely unsafe conditions on building sites and a whole host of other things so you know Qatar got awarded this world cup 12 years ago and they've been in full full building mode ever since and it's only been in the last sort of couple of years that they've started to actually reform what they call the kafala system which is essentially a system of indentured labor and in which these migrant workers have been subjected to which involves things like, you know, illegal recruitment fees, so between one and three thousand US dollars just to come and get, just to come and take up a job in Qatar. Um, extremely crowded, unsanitary um, accommodations, so twelve people, you know, twelve men being crowded into a single room, you know, fifty men using one toilet, and then virtually no health and safety in place in, in in any way, no minimum wage, uh, no ability to leave. Someone leave your job without the permission of your employer. No ability to leave the country without your employer agreeing it. And that's only been very mildly reformed in the last two years. Um, So there's been, you know, there's a 10-year period where migrant workers were coming and working, often for very little money in these extremely unsafe conditions. We know that many thousands of them have died in the process. So, yeah, it's an extremely serious issue. We have to say that they have made some. There have been some improvements. They have made some. You know some steps forward um, in terms of how they protect migrant workers. There is now a minimum wage. They have brought in these they're not unions, but they brought in kind of employer-led committees where workers can raise concerns. But yeah, I mean, there's still an extremely long way to go. And given that the World Cup is only about three weeks away, it doesn't seem like progress is going to be far enough, go far enough. So what Amnesty and our partners are calling for is for FIFA to and the Qatari authorities to establish a compensation fund, three hundred and fifty million pounds. Standing to make six billion profit from the World Cup, so to set that money aside to compensate the families of the migrant workers who have lost lost their lives uh, in delivering this World Cup.
0: Yeah, I've seen a figure of five thousand nine hundred and twenty seven deaths of migrant workers between twenty eleven and twenty twenty. Those were workers from India, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Sri Lanka, and there were also. 824 Pakistani workers who had died in Qatar, according to the Pakistani embassy, between 2010 and 2020. So we're actually getting towards 6,500 workers who have died. That was on infrastructure projects in Qatar, but really since 2011 anyway, when they were awarded the World Cup, the World Cup has been the primary infrastructure project in Qatar itself.
1: Yeah, so there's, obviously, when we think about the World Cup and we think about infrastructure, we think about stadiums. But that's only been one, you know, one very small part of the infrastructure that's been needed to deliver this World Cup. So there's stadiums, but there's also been roads, hotels, bars. They've built a new deep-sea port. So all sorts of, you know, electrical power stations and substations to provide power to the stadiums. So there's been a massive amount of infrastructure development, not just the stadiums. And actually, what Amnesty and our partners have seen is that, the working conditions around the stadiums because there's so much scrutiny of, of the stadiums because of the, you know the association with the football matches you know the health and safety there has tightened up a little bit whereas in those in many of those other areas it's been completely neglected also you know those sort of ancillary workers so people like cooks and security guards who the you know the world really isn't watching are still being subjected to extremely poor working conditions
0: Sarah then we have this LGBT issue and I just think it's very apt in a weekend when English football is celebrating rainbow laces people may criticize that in some regards and question how sincere football clubs are about that but it is an initiative players will wear rainbow laces there will be pro-LGBT messages on boards up and down the country inside stadiums how do you compare that with what's happening in qatar
2: well i think the first thing to say is it just shows how critical this campaign is going to be this year because we've talked about you know why we do the campaign and this year it has to be about visibility we have to be as visible as possible to as many people as possible and we will use the world cup as a as a sort of thing to say look this is why we need to be excuse the pun out there and be visible because this the world cup is we you know what's happening over there to fans that may decide to travel or what potentially could happen is terrifying. And I don't think there's a a full understanding across the board of what could actually happen to LGBTQ football supporters if they choose to travel. So I think while a lot of people over here look at rainbow laces, in some ways the way that they now look at taking the knee and say, oh yeah, you know, okay, is is it running its course? Are people taking any notice? Absolutely, yes, they are and they have to, and this World Cup shows why it's more important than ever this year, I think. What's your understanding
0: of what would happen if people were out as gay people in Qatar?
2: Well, I mean, obviously the law over there states that there's the death penalty, you know, the ultimate um, punishment there for being, for being gay is the death penalty. Certainly arrest and harassment. We've heard this week that obviously Peter Tatchell being arrested and released. We've heard that LGBT people are being taken off the streets. Now, whether that's pre-World Cup, as a, I don't know, inverted commas, clean up, who knows, that they're being taken off the streets and then are being beaten and are being persecuted. That's terrifying in 2022.
1: It's punishable by severe prison sentences. And we did see recently some reports, I think that Sarah was referring to from Human Rights Watch, about LGBT people being detained and beaten, and the use of conversion practices, Amnesty doesn't have our own evidence on those, though. So just just to say that. And in terms of the death penalty, it, I think it's it's sort of on the statute books, but not. We don't understand that it's that it's used. Whether or not that's the case is sort of almost slightly beside the point, though.
0: Your understanding is, in any event, it is against the law, and people would be punished.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Mm.
0: Sarah, people might say there's a degree of hypocrisy about this, though, from the West or from English football you know we've had I think one out gay footballer one out gay men's footballer Jake Daniels at Blackpool and he is the first professional footballer to say they are gay since Justin Fashionu in the 1980s and Fashionu only came out after he had finished his football career if I remember correctly so How comfortable are people to express their sexuality in men's football?
2: Well, I think it's a bigger picture for me because whether they're comfortable or not is to do with the current climate, which, as we know, is becoming a lot more hostile to anybody, not just the LGBTQ community. Any minority community at the moment is coming under more and more scrutiny. But the bigger picture for me would be that if a footballer wanted to come out in this country, they absolutely could, without fear of legal retribution. OK, they might get some abuse from the fans. That's what we're there to try and stamp out. But the point for me is they absolutely can come out and they can feel safe and they can feel comfortable in doing that. So it doesn't feel like hypocrisy to me. We can do that. Legally, we can we can have players that can come out if they want to. And just to say, there is a Scottish player as well now, Xander Murray, Alexander Murray said that he was inspired by Josh Carvalho coming out, the Australian footballer. So there are more and more players coming out, but the point is they can. They can come out without fear of legal retribution.
0: Felix, I read an article in Middle East Eye by Crystal Ennis, who is a, an academic at the University of Leiden in Holland, and she wasn't excusing the abuse of migrant workers. The headline, which includes a quote from her article, is that migrant worker abuse shames the whole world, not just Qatar. So she makes the point that in Holland, where she lives, there have been examples of migrant workers having been exploited and abused, as I'm sure there have been as well in the UK, and that to, as it were, scapegoat Qatar in this way is to be guilty of Orientalism, a very particular Western world view of how people in the East and the Middle East should be and how they should behave
1: it's a very interesting um position to take and there's i mean there's a few things that i'd say about that so first of all exploitation of workers particularly migrant workers happens all over the world uh, i don't think there's many countries that can say they're absolutely no you know that but that doesn't take place i think what we have to bear in mind here and actually what's really important in qatar is two things so firstly qatar when they were awarded the world cup by fifa who are an international the international governing body of football made a decision that, that this could go ahead in a country that had zero infrastructure to deliver a World Cup. So everything had to be built from scratch. This isn't like holding a World Cup in the UK where we've, we've got all of the stadiums and all of the hotels and restaurants that you need. No, this all had to be built from scratch. And at that time, Qatar had a system of effectively indentured labour, more or less akin to, to almost to slavery. Individuals unable to change jobs without their employer's permission, Unable to leave the country, when they arrived, their passports were confiscated. Routine denial of wages, extremely low wages, zero health and safety. So condition for migrant workers, absolutely appalling. And FIFA, as the international governing body of football, decided that Qatar was a responsible place to award the World Cup to knowing that these stadiums were going to be needed to be built by migrant workers. So the failure to anticipate the mass violations of human rights that were going to be you know inevitable in, in this in the delivery of this world cup that speaks volumes and that's that stands aside from any criticism that you can make of any country that is that's directly related to the delivery of this world cup. What I think is also really important to point out is that when we look at who is being exploited in Qatar, it's absolutely not the white Western expatriate community that are working in Qatar. Now for many people, Qatar um, and other countries in the Middle East, if you're you know, an oil worker, you know, you're know, you a teacher, you're a lawyer, you can go out and make your fortune in the Middle East. White Westerners get paid thousands of pounds a month tax-free to come and do um, all sorts of jobs in the Middle East. Whereas the people that are being exploited in Qatar and having their rights violated are exclusively coming from the Indian subcontinent and sub-Saharan Africa. People coming from situations of extreme poverty who are being exploited because of the fact that they have zero power, they have zero financial resources, and they have zero recourse when their rights are being violated. So, what re and, and talking about the, the situation of exploitation for migrant workers in other countries is really quite unhelpful when we know that thousands of people have died in Qatar, millions and millions of pounds worth of unpaid wages are outstanding for many of these workers. And there are still enormous categories of workers in Qatar, for example, domestic workers, the exploitation and abuse of whom is going on behind closed doors. They're, they're people working in the homes of Qataris. Um, Amnesty and others have documented consistently people working for months on end without a single day off, 14 hours a day, and also suffering sort of serious physical and sexual abuse. So you know, this is a situation where there is extreme widespread migrant rights abuses taking place which is something that we know happens all over the world, and we're not singling out Qatar for any reason other than the fact that FIFA decided to host the World Cup there, and as a consequence of that, enormous numbers of people have gone to Qatar and enormous numbers of those people have had their human rights violated.
0: Yeah. Crystal Ennis in this article says that exploitation under temporary migration regimes is far from exceptional and should be understood as structural. Certainly we should highlight exploitation and be enraged about abuse but this should not be exoticized as something uniquely Qatari. But your point is that you're not saying it's uniquely Qatari, but the World Cup is a unique institution, and this is a one-off event, and this has exacerbated what are no doubt structural problems in terms of employment practices around the world.
2: Yeah,
1: so amnesty is critical of worker exploitation wherever it takes place, and... These types of practice, you know, simple, uh, things similar to the kafala system in Qatar, exist in other countries in the Middle East. They exist in Saudi Arabia, they exist in the UAE. This isn't unique to Qatar. What we're talking about, though, is the decision, particularly of FIFA, to award a World Cup to a country that had a system of effectively of indentured labor, no minimum wage, no ability to form a union, no ability to leave your job without your employers say so. so. And now FIFA have made that decision. Qatar have then made that decision and exploited those workers' rights. And we think it's only fair that retribution is made to them. And I think the other point to just make on this, particularly about this idea of Orientalism, is, as I said before, Western white working people there are not treated in this way. So, you know, there was a story recently about an, a man, a Scottish man working on an oil rig who gets paid $11,000 a month to do that job. Now, how many hours and how many years, in fact, would it even would it take a Nepalese construction worker to make the same amount of money? It would be be about five years worth of work to make what that guy makes in a month. So let's not pretend that there isn't a division within Qatar itself about who is paid good money and who is treated extremely poorly.
0: Sarah, this is a Muslim country, countries which are devoutly Muslim, very often do have restrictive legal frameworks in relation to LGBT people. How do we manage that, given that FIFA, in taking the World Cup to different countries and different parts of the world, will perhaps inevitably take it to countries that don't share a more liberal view about LGBT rights?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of things to say there. I mean, the one is, and we touched on this with the Commonwealth Games earlier this year with Tom Daly, is that do we want to be taking major tournaments to countries that have poor human rights records, poor LGBT rights, sexist environments? Do we want to be taking major tournaments to those countries anyway? Should there be a minimum standard that says you have to tick this, this, this and this box before we'll even consider bringing that tournament to you now you can't discriminate on the fact that just because it's a Muslim country that's not how it works it works on let's look at the, the bigger picture let's look at the human rights let's look at women's rights let's look at LGBT rights so I think that's the first thing to say the second thing to say for me is I mean I go to the football every single week I go as a football supporter I go to watch football I don't wish this to sound flippant but I don't go to be gay I go to watch the football and the England supporters, Wales supporters, any supporters that are going to watch this world cup in Qatar are going because they want to watch the football. So where does this argument come from about, Oh, well, you know, don't come over here and be gay. Well, do you understand what I'm saying? There isn't going to be an open sort of anything going on other than watching football. That's why we're going. And straight away, there's this assumption that people will go, gay men or lesbians will go to the to watch the World Cup and they're going to be doing things other than watching the football. No, they're not. They're going to support the football.
0: Mm. But I suppose the point is that were you to kiss a girlfriend in public in Qatar, in Doha, let's say, you would face the full force of the law. If you did that in Birmingham, I saw two... I think, gay guys kissing in the middle of Manchester yesterday. And that was just something that happened on the street and nobody really bothered. I suppose that's the point, isn't it? You go there as a football fan, you want to follow your country, but in expressing your identity in other ways, you might fall foul of the law.
2: But your identity in going to Qatar is going as, for example, an England fan going as a Wales fan that's your identity when we go to the football ultimately the first thing we are is we are football supporters and that's why people are going and I know people that support Wales this is the first time Wales have been in a major tournament since I don't know when and they won't go to the World Cup so that you know this would be their only opportunity to go to a World Cup to support their team and they don't feel safe enough to go now all they want to do is go and watch the football I understand what you're saying about, you know, if you like public displays of affection. And I think there is an argument for just being respectful of where you are, whether that's in Qatar, whether that's in Morrison's car park, whether that's outside the Albion ground. There's always an argument for me for a bit of public decency. But we shouldn't be having it hanging over us that if we do do anything, that there's a chance of being arrested and beaten. Absolutely not. That shouldn't be the case wherever we are.
0: And the friends you're talking about then won't go to the World Cup, your friends who are Wales supporters, because they're fearful that in some way they might express their sexual orientation and that might get them into trouble.
2: Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's different ways of expressing your orientation. For example, I'm hearing now that gay people are going to struggle to get hotels. So if, if two gay men or a couple have booked a hotel... And then they get there, and the people in that hotel take one look at them, don't like the look of them, realise they've only booked one room, realise it's a double room. They're being turned away from hotels. So there are different ways in which you express your sexual orientation. Booking a double hotel room is one of them, because it's obvious if two men turn up, double room, they're a gay couple, they're going to get turned away. So there's lots of different ways that you express yourself. And I think it's for whale supporters in particular and I'm saying that because I'm sitting in Wales right now, it's terrible that they can't go to the World Cup because of that.
0: Would you think about going to support England in Qatar?
2: No, I don't think I would. I really don't. I mean, I've I've toyed with the idea of, would I, do we boycott or do we go and protest? And I think there are certain countries where you would go and protest. A country where, and I understand what Felix is saying, it's that the death penalty's never been used, but would I go and protest in a country where the ultimate punishment is the death penalty? Absolutely not. No, I, w- I wouldn't go. I would boycott rather than protest. And all all credit to Peter Tatchell for doing what he's doing, because the risks are huge.
0: Felix, there was a survey carried out by a Scandinavian media organisation. They surveyed 69 hotels on FIFA's official list of recommended accommodation. Three said that they would deny entry to same-sex couples. 20 others said they would accommodate them as long as they did not publicly show that they were gay. And 33 hotels had no problem with booking same-sex couples. So is it possible that the fear around Qatar is worse than the reality is likely to be?
1: The point that Amnesty and some of our partners have been making about this whole issue and the point that you know, it's partly what Sarah's getting at, but building on that is that, okay, so there's going to be the World Cup and there's going to be the traveling fans who come to Qatar and, you know, the Qatari authorities have already had plenty of bad publicity about their record on LGBT rights, on workers' rights, you know, on all sorts of different things. And they're not going to want to be in a situation where they're arresting lots of gay people who are, who are visiting the country because it's just it's just further bad pr right they've spent a lot of money on this world cup they want it to be you know they want it to go off they want it to have that good pr this is a massive sports washing moment for qatar you know it's parading itself on the world stage as a major player internationally so i think the issue for for fans and i and i wouldn't question anything that sarah said about the fear that lgbt fans travelling will have and i think those fears are right but I think that they're only one fairly small part of this picture because, you know, the much bigger issue here is is for the LGBT people who who live in Qatar, who are completely—it's illegal for them to express their own identity—and you know, for those people, once the World Cup rolls out of town and the and that scrutiny kind of comes off Qatar, what does life go back to being like for them? And again, this is something which. I think it's really important that we, we talk about in exactly the same way as the migrant worker issue is that, yeah, the Qataris are probably going to do all they can during the actual World Cup period itself to try and dampen down as much as possible these issues and to appear open and welcoming. But what's the situation going to be like once the scrutiny of the World Cup is gone? And I know Nasser al-Qatar, who's the guy that's in charge of the World Cup, was recently asked a question. By a journalist, whether you know what would happen if the two of them were to walk down the street together holding hands, he said, Well, no one would bother us, and that's fine if you're the you're someone that's on the the chair of the executive committee for delivering the world cup. But if you're an ordinary Qatari who's gay um, and wants to walk down the street holding the hand of your partner, it's going to be a very different story. You're likely to face arrest, beating, and time in prison just for expressing your sexual identity. So the traveling fans were a really important part of this conversation, but I think the ordinary Qataris. We're going to be left behind after the World Cup has finished is who we should be really talking about.
0: I should say that uh, FIFA's, this is a grand name, FIFA's Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy has said, read the hotels. They will ensure that the hotels mentioned the three that said they would turn away same-sex couples, they will ensure that the hotels mentioned are once again made aware of our strict requirements in relation to welcoming guests in a non-discriminatory manner. We shall see. One final thought. This is ultimately about sports washing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the, it's the ultimate sports washing goal, right? The World Cup, it's, you know, alongside the Olympics, it's, it's the most prestigious international sporting event, event there is. I don't think anything is more watched on TV than than the World Cup. So it's a huge kind of coup for Qatar. And yeah, they're going to want to be showing themselves off to the world as this modern, outward-looking state. I think FIFA have really got to think very carefully now about who, you know, who they continue to award these sporting events to, though, quite frankly. So we've recently had Russia and Qatar. And you know, people talked about Russia and the Russia World Cup as Whether this it would be a time that Russia would change and be reforming? They've got the World Cup. You know, people are going to go to Russia and have a great time. Um, And look where we are with Russia and its human rights record. Look where we are with China after China had both the summer and the winter Olympics. We've got a million people in internment camps in Xinjiang. So the idea that these sporting events are anything other than part of a wider package of kind of normalisation of these regimes which really do not protect, respect or fulfil people's human rights to almost any degree. It's fanciful. This is, this is all about sports washing. It's all about PR. It's all about appearing to be big players on the global stage, but really being countries that, that really do not respect the rights of their civilians. And I think particularly with Qatar and the migrant worker situation, Qatar is a country that h- that could have easily afforded not to have to exploit workers in this in this way the amount of money that they have spent on this world cup you know if they would have diverted just a small fraction of that to paying people not poverty wages to giving them decent accommodation it would have been absolutely affordable to qatar they built the shard you know they're holding the world cup they have got money to burn and yet they chose still to utterly disregard the human rights of the people that have come to deliver that for them and to, to sort of win them that sports washing crown. So it's a very difficult thing and it's something that FIFA and these big international sporting bodies really need to, you know, need to come to terms with I think.
0: Felix, thank you very much for your time. Felix Jakins from Amnesty International. Thanks also to Sarah Robinson from Proud Baggies. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. If you want to support our work, then please take out a subscription to the Byline Times to get full details of how to subscribe to our brilliant monthly newspaper over at our website, bylinetimes.com. Bye now.